Story 17 of Japanese Fairy World Stories from the Wonderlore of Japan by William Elliot Griffiths This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Noel Badrian How the Jellyfish Lost Its Shell Parts of the seas of the Japanese archipelago are speckled with thousands of round white jellyfish that swim a few feet below the surface. One can see the great steamer go ploughing through them as though through a field of frosted cakes. The huge paddle wheels make a perfect pudding of thousands of them as they are dashed against the paddle box and whipped into a froth like white of eggs or churned into a thick cream by the propeller blades. Sometimes the shoals are of great breadth and then it veritably looks as though a crockery shop has been upset in the ocean and ten thousand white dinner plates had broken loose. Around the bays and harbours, the Japanese boys at play drive them with paddles into shoals and sometimes they poke sticks through them. This they can do easily because the jellyfish has no jacket of shell or bone like the lobster nor any skin like a fish and so always has to swim naked, exposed to all kinds of danger. Sometimes great jellyfishes, two or three feet in diameter, sail gaily along near the shore, as proud as the long-handled umbrella of a daimyo, and as brilliantly coloured as a Japanese parasol. Floating all round their bodies, like the streamers of a temple festival or a court lady's ribbons, are there long tentacles or feelers? No peacock stretching his bannered tail could make a finer sight, or look prouder than these floating sunfishes or bladders of living jelly. But alas for all things made of water! But let a wave of unusual force or a sudden gust of wind come, and this lump of pride lies collapsed and stranded on the shore, like a pancake upset into a turnover, in which batter and crust are hopelessly mixed together. When found fresh, men often come down to the shore, and cutting huge slices of blubber, as transparent as ice, they eat the solid water with their rice in lieu of drink. A jellyfish as big as an umbrella, and weighing as much as a big boy, will, after lying a few hours in the sun, leave scarcely a trace on the spot, for their bodies are little more than animated masses of water. At night, however, where a jellyfish has stranded, the ground seems to crawl and emit a dull fire of phosphorescence, which the Japanese call dragon's light. But the jellyfish once had a shell, and was not so defenceless, say the fairy tales. How it lost it is thus told. In the days of old, the jellyfish was one of the retainers in waiting upon the queen of the world under the sea, at her palace in Rio Gyu. In those days he had a shell, and as his head was hard, no one dared to insult him, or stick him with their horns, or pinch him with their claws, or scratch him with their nails, or brush rudely by him with their fins. In short, 
This fish, instead of being a lump of jelly, as white and helpless as a pudding, as we see him now, was a lordly fellow that could get his back up and keep it high when he wished to. He waited on the queen, and right proud was he of his office. He was on good terms with the king's dragon, which often allowed him to play with his scaly tail, but never hurt him in the least. One day the queen fell sick, and every hour grew worse. The king became anxious, and her subjects talked about nothing else but her sickness. There was grief all through the water world, from the mermaids on their beds of sponges and the dragons in their rocky caverns, down to the tiny gudgeons in the rivers, that were considered no more than mere bait. The jolly cuttlefish stopped playing his drums and guitar, folded his six arms, and hid away moping in his hole. His servant the lobster in vain lighted his candle at night, and tried to induce him to come out of his lair. The dolphins and porpoises wept tears, but the clams, oysters and limpets shut up their shells and did not even wiggle. The flounders and skates lay flat on the ocean's floor, never even lifting up their noses. The squid wept a great deal of ink, and the jellyfish nearly melted to pure water. The tortoise was patient and offered to do anything for the relief of the queen, but nothing could be done. The cuttlefish, who professed to be a kind of a doctor, offered the use of all his cups to suck out the poison, if that were the trouble. But it wasn't. It was internal, and nothing but medicine that could be swallowed would reach the disease. At last someone suggested that the liver of a monkey would be a specific for the royal sickness, and it was resolved to try it. The tortoise, who was the queen's messenger, because he could live both on land and water, swim or crawl, was summoned. He was told to go upon earth to a certain mountain, catch a monkey and bring him alive to the underworld. Off started the tortoise on his journey to the earth, and going to a mountain where the monkeys lived, squatted down at the foot of a tree and pretended to be asleep, though keeping his claws and tail out. There he waited patiently, well knowing that curiosity and the monkey's love of tricks would bring one within reach of his talons. Pretty soon a family of chattering monkeys came running along among the branches overhead, when suddenly a young Saru, monkey, caught sight of the sleeping tortoise. Naru Hodo, is it possible, said the long-handed fellow, here's fun, let's tickle the old fellow's back and pull his tail. All agreed, and forthwith a dozen monkeys, joining hand over hand, made a long ladder of themselves until they just reached the tortoise's back. They didn't use their tails, for Japanese monkeys have none, except stumps two inches long. However, he who was to be the tail end of this living rope, when all was ready, crawled along and slipped over the whole line, whispering as he slid, Shh! Don't chatter or laugh. You'll wake the old fellow up. 
Now the monkey expected to hold on the living pendulum by one long hand, and swinging down with the other, to pull the tortoise's tail, and see how near he could come to his snout without being snapped up. For a monkey well knew that a tortoise could neither jump off its legs nor climb a tree. Once, twice, the monkey pendulum swung back and forth without touching. Three, four, the monkey's fingernails scratched the tortoise's back. Yet old Hardshell pretended to be sound asleep. Five, six, the monkey caught hold of the tortoise's tail and jerked it hard. Old Tortoise now moved out its head a little, as if still only half awake. Seven, eight, this time the monkey intended to pull the tortoise's head. When just as it came within reach, the tortoise snapped him, held him in his claws, and as the monkey pendulum swung back, he lost his hold. In an instant he was jerked loose and fell head foremost to the ground, half stunned. Frightened at the loss of their end link, the other monkeys of the chain wound themselves up like a windlass over the branches, and squatting on the trees set up a doleful chattering. Now, says the tortoise, I want you to go with me. If you don't, I'll eat you up. Get on my back and I'll carry you, but I must hold your paw in my mouth so you won't run away. Half frightened to death, the monkey obeyed and the tortoise trotted off to the sea, swam to the spot over the queen's palace, and in a fillip of a finger was down in the gardens of Ryugyu. Here, let me say, that according to another version of the story, the monkeys assembled in force when they suspected what the tortoise had come after, and catching him napping, turned him over on his back, so that he could not move or bite. Then they took his undershell off, so that he had to travel back to Ryugyu and get another one. This last version, however, is uncertain, and it looks like a piece of invention to suppose that the monkeys had a sufficient medical knowledge to make them suspicious of the designs of the tortoise on the monkey's liver. I prefer the regular account. End of How the Jellyfish Lost Its Shell